You're listening to a podcast by Redeemer Bible Church. Come visit us Sunday mornings at 10 a.m. or visit our website at RedeemerFortBend.org for more information. Thanks and enjoy. There's an old country song which for your sake I will not attempt to sing. Uh, But the lyrics, which I have slightly censored, I think are instructive. Goodness, it's hard to be humble when you're perfect in every way. I can't wait to look in the mirror because I get better looking each day. My friends, they all adore me. I must be a wonderful man. Goodness, it's hard to be humble, but I'm doing the best that I can. This is a wonderful example of false humility, making an outward show of humility while inwardly uh, just reveling in self. And our world is full of this sort of thing. Unfortunately, many churches are too, and sometimes we each are as well. But in contrast to this false humility is the true humility that Jesus has been teaching about in Matthew chapters 18 through 20 which consists of a childlike humility towards God, an awareness of our own inability, a confession of our need and dependence upon God's grace. And it also consists of a generous humility towards others, which lovingly serves others, which considers their needs above our own. And Jesus not only commands this true humility towards God and others, but He tells us why it's essential. Because there's a principle in God's kingdom that he stated twice in recent chapters, which goes like this. The last will be first, and the first will be last. And we've seen two applications of this principle in recent weeks. First, we saw it in salvation. Friends, we've got to humble ourselves to be saved. We've got to acknowledge that our sin has disqualified us from God's glory, We've got to acknowledge we cannot improve our own situation on our own. We have to be entirely dependent upon Christ. We are the last in God's view, but God graciously makes those who cast themselves upon Christ's mercy into the first. He saves us and forgives us and brings us into his family. In contrast, you might remember the rich young ruler showed that many who are first in the estimate of this world, the wealthy and the powerful, are often unwilling or unable to humble themselves before God, and as a result, they are forever lost. The first will be last. We saw a second application from the parable at the beginning of chapter 20 that shows that among God's people, there's no place for arrogance, no place for looking down on each other. That leads to God's rebuke. But those who imagine themselves first, they're going to become last, and yet those who are last will be first. Those who know they don't have cause to look down on anyone else, they are rewarded without rebuke. Now today we come to the end of this big section on humility, Matthew 20, 17 through 34. And once more we're going to see this principle of the first and the last applied. But this time it's applied in a third context. This time it's going to talk about Jesus, and we're going to see this today in three points. First, Jesus is the first who became last in his ultimate example of humble obedience to the Father. Second, Jesus is the last who becomes first 
through his example of loving service towards others. And then third, Jesus offers present and future rewards for those who humble themselves as he takes those who are last and makes them first. Well, let's start with our first point. Jesus is the first who became last in his supreme demonstration of humble obedience to the Father. As we start today, Jesus is still on the road to Jerusalem. If you have a Bible open, look at Matthew 19, verse 1, and we read that Jesus went away from Galilee and entered the region of Judea beyond the Jordan. That is to say that Jesus did not take the most direct route from Galilee to Jerusalem. Most Jews didn't because the direct route led through the territory of the Samaritans. And there was an ancient hatred between the Jews and the Samaritans. So most Jews took an indirect route when they traveled between Galilee and Jerusalem, which avoided the Samaritans. Now this indirect route involved crossing the Jordan twice. Now Jesus did not hate the Samaritans. Very early in his ministry, he went to them, he ministered to them. Some of them believed in him. You can read about that in John 4. But here Jesus takes this traditional indirect route. And I think the reason for that is Jesus is not traveling alone. See, something really big is about to happen. The Feast of Passover is about to take place. And Exodus 23 commanded that all Jewish men should go to Jerusalem for the Passover. And so there would have been thousands of people making this same trip from Galilee to Jerusalem. And all of them would have been taking this traditional indirect route. And as Jesus and his disciples also go towards Jerusalem, it seems they join this massive company of pilgrims. So they also follow the indirect path. They go east across the Jordan, and then they go south, and then back west across the Jordan to Jerusalem. And as our passage begins, Jesus and his disciples are nearing the capital. They're almost there. And we read in verse 17 of chapter 20, And as Jesus was going up to Jerusalem, he took the twelve disciples aside. Jesus has something to say, but this is not good stuff for the public to hear. This is reserved only for his disciples. And so he pulls his disciples aside from the other pilgrims, and he tells them this, verse 17. And on the way he said to them, See, we are going up to Jerusalem. Jesus reminds them where they're going. Now believe me, the disciples knew where they were going. They were surrounded by thousands of people that were all heading to Jerusalem. So why does Jesus point this out? Because he told them back in chapter 16, verse 21, he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things from the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed and on the third day be raised. And here Jesus is saying to them, guys, this is it. Pay attention, it's going to happen. And to make it even clearer, now for the fourth time in this book, Jesus spells out exactly what's going to happen when he arrives. And this time he makes the prediction crystal clear. Look at verse 18. He says, The Son of Man will be delivered over to the chief priests and scribes. Now this verb delivered can mean either arrested or betrayed. And Jesus is going to be both. He's going to be betrayed and arrested. And he's going to be taken in front of the Sanhedrin, the supreme court of Judaism, which consisted of the chief priests as well as leading Pharisees and scribes. Verse 18, he says, and they will condemn him to death. This verb here speaks of a judicial proceeding. Jesus is saying he's going to be put on trial and they're going to sentence him to death. And that's what happens. 
Verse 19, he says, and they're going to deliver him over to the Gentiles. Now, this is a part of Jesus' suffering that he has not predicted before. You know, the Jewish religious authorities were allowed to stage their own trials. They were allowed to pass death sentences, but they weren't legally allowed to kill anybody because they were a subject people under the dominion of Rome. They wanted anybody dead. They had to take them to the Romans and have the Romans kill them. And Jesus says, that's what's going to happen to me. And of course we know it will. He's going to be delivered for this purpose. Look at verse 19. He'll be delivered over to the Gentiles to be mocked and flogged and crucified. He's going to be subjected to humiliation, to scorn, to torture. And then he says he's going to be crucified. This is the first time he makes this clear in the whole book. A few times Jesus has said that his disciples must take up their cross and follow him. But now he tells us that's not just a figure of speech. Jesus indeed is going to the cross. Jesus is going to die by crucifixion. So what's that entail? He's going to be publicly exposed and stripped. He's going to be subjected to a slow, agonizing death of suffocation as he is surrounded by his enemies who are laughing and celebrating as he dies. It is a horrible, horrible death. And this is where Jesus' path leads. Now, to a first century Jew, the idea that this might happen to their Messiah would have seemed like blasphemy. The Messiah was going to crush Rome. The Messiah was going to make Israel the head of the nations. How can the Messiah be killed by Gentiles? This would seem impossible. But make no mistake. Jesus says he's the Messiah. He says here that he is the Son of Man, the figure in Daniel 7 who will be given a kingdom that all peoples and nations and languages should serve him, a kingdom that shall not pass away. That's Jesus. And yet Jesus says this is his destiny. He's got to be handed over to the Romans, and he's got to die this awful death. This would have been totally incomprehensible to the disciples. They believed Jesus was the Messiah, but they would have had no categories for this. Everything Jesus here is saying to them is everything they'd grown up believing the Messiah would be the opposite of. This would have made no sense to them at all. And we're going to see in just a second that, in fact, they don't understand. But Jesus knew where his journey was heading. And he knew it not just because he was a really smart guy who could read the situation and and made a good guess about how things were going to turn out. No. Jesus knew this was going to be how it turned out because this was the eternal plan and purpose of God. In chapter 16, he says, he must go and suffer. It is necessary that he go through these horrible things. This was God's plan. This is why God the Son took on human flesh for this experience. But Jesus' story while it is a sorrowful one, does not end with death and a grave. Because Jesus says in verse 19, he will be raised on the third day. Now notice the verb here is be raised. It's passive. In other words, the verb is being done by someone else. And ordinarily in the New Testament, when we find a passive verb like this, and it's not spelled out who's going to do it, we should understand it to be God, or in this case, God the Father. So Jesus says, the Father is going to intervene at this point and raise him from the dead. The Father is going to vindicate Jesus after he has been falsely condemned and unjustly killed. Jesus will win in the end. But the disciples are clueless, friends. But 
we must not be clueless. We need to understand this is where Jesus' story must go. This is what the Father had planned and purposed. This is how things had to be. Say, why? Why did Jesus have to endure this? Why was this God's plan? The good news is we don't have to guess, because in just a few verses, Jesus is going to tell us very plainly. But today, we need to know that the story of Jesus culminates in his death and resurrection. This is the most important part of Jesus' story. And you know what? The gospel writers communicate this to us. Because each of the four gospels devotes a disproportionately large amount of space to the final week of Jesus' life. More than a third of Matthew's gospel, about a third of Mark's gospel, about a quarter of Luke's gospel, and almost half of John's gospel are only about Jesus' final week. Clearly the gospel writers thought this was the most important part of the story they had to communicate because they emphasized it so much in their accounts of Jesus' life. They understood that Jesus' death and resurrection are central to our understanding of who Jesus is and why he matters. They are absolutely central to the Christian faith. And friends, they are central to our own destiny. If we do not believe in Jesus' resurrection, if we do not entrust ourselves to his death and resurrection, friends, we are not Christians. We are not part of the people of God. We are not rightly related to Christ. And we will not be saved. That's how essential these issues are. But I want to take a second and consider this idea of Jesus' suffering within the broader context of these three chapters we've been studying lately, which have so emphasized humility. What do we learn about humility here? I think Jesus here shows us the supreme example of humility in terms of obedience. Obedience is an act of humility because it says to God, I will submit my will and my life and my desire to you. And Jesus, who is eternally God the Son, equally sharing in the same nature and attributes as the Father and the Holy Spirit, he subordinated himself to the Father. Not because he was inferior in essence. He was not. But he chose to obey, to carry out the saving plan of the Trinity. We'll see this in chapter 26 in the garden, where Jesus prays, not my will, but as you will. Right? He, him going to the cross was the Father's will, and Jesus subjected himself to that. You know, Jesus always subjected himself to the Father's will throughout his ministry. He says in John 8, I always do the things that are pleasing to him. And the Father affirms this twice in this book as he speaks audibly in chapter 3 and chapter 17, saying, this is my beloved Son with whom I am well pleased. The Father was pleased with Jesus because Jesus was an obedient son. Now, friends, we are, by nature, inferior to God. we got to recognize that reality. Right? We need to obey God. Now, if you've never come to Christ, what you need to obey is the gospel. You need to repent and believe. If you have come to Christ, we need to recognize this is part of what it means to belong to God. To rise up against God's word and say, I'm not going to listen, is an act of arrogance. Because it says I'm better than what I really am. It says I know better than God. That's why obedience demonstrates humility. And there's no greater example of obedience or humility than the events Jesus talks about here. The Apostle Paul explains in Philippians chapter 2, verse 5, that Christ Jesus, though he was in the form of God, think about this, God the Son, 
dwelt in the unbroken, glorious community of the Trinity, basking in heavenly splendor and joy, surrounded by countless angels singing his praises, lacking nothing by any metric. Jesus was first, right? Jesus is first in heaven. He's first in glory. He's first over everything. And yet, Philippians 2 says, He did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but He emptied Himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. The uncreated one entered creation. The limitless one took on true humanity with all its limitations. He set his divine prerogatives aside. He became one of us. And he didn't come as a great king. He didn't come as a fabulous, wealthy celebrity. He didn't come as a Kardashian on TV. He came as one with no influence or power. He humbled himself tremendously, reducing himself in this way. But that's not all. Because Philippians 2.8 says, being found in human form. He humbled himself again by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Jesus not only underwent the infinite abasement of becoming truly human. Think about this, right? We see an ant on the ground. Say, well, maybe this is like me becoming an ant. Okay, there is more separation between Christ and humanity than humanity and an ant. Okay, Christ has infinitely abased himself to take on humanity. And not only that, he further humbled himself by becoming subject to death. The immortal one became obedient to death, and not any death. Not a comfortable death in his sleep at the age of 90. The awful death on the cross. A death of torture and humiliation. A criminal's death. By any metric, this is to be last. Friends, this is humility beyond measure. Quite literally, the first became last. It is a reduction vaster than anything we can think of. And Jesus did it because he was obedient to the Father. See, friends, as Jesus points us to humility, he points us to obedience. Jesus is not a Lord who commands of us what he's not willing to do himself. See, we may find obedience difficult in our flesh, surrounded by the world, tempted by the devil, But what is asked of us is nowhere near as difficult as what was asked of Jesus. We're asked to deny ourselves and obey Jesus. Jesus actually hung on the cross for six hours and bore the wrath of God. He obeyed a much harder command, right? We may find humility difficult. We may revel in self. We may love to be seen and applauded. But the selflessness and the abasement and the service which are commanded of us are nowhere near the vast levels of reduction that Jesus underwent. But he did it. He obeyed supremely. He humbled himself supremely. He went to the cross. And that fact makes our every act of disobedience and our every thought of arrogance all the more blameworthy. Friends, the ultimate example has been set for us. We must look to it. Hebrews 12 says, let us lay aside every weight and the sin which clings so closely and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross. Jesus' example is an example that we are to try to follow. Of course, we won't do it perfectly, but we are to look to Jesus 
and follow his example in these areas. But we come now to our second point, which is that Jesus is the last who becomes first through his example of loving service towards others. Our Jesus has told the disciples where they're going, but they don't get it. At this point in Luke's gospel, Luke 18.34 says, The disciples understood none of these things. This saying was hidden from them, and they did not grasp it. So this prediction, the meaning was hidden from them. And again, this is another passive verb that's left unexplained. So we should understand this is talking about God. It was the will of God that the disciples should not yet fully grasp what Jesus was saying here. Now, of course, ultimately they will understand it after these events have all happened. But at this point, they hear Jesus saying the words, but they don't understand them correctly. Maybe they thought Jesus was talking metaphorically. Maybe they thought Jesus was telling them, this is what my enemies want to do to me. But they didn't get that this was actually what was going to happen. However they understood it, they didn't grasp that he was about to die. Rather, they had a very different expectation. Luke 19.11 tells us what it was. He was near to Jerusalem, and they supposed that the kingdom of God was to appear immediately. They thought when Jesus strolled through the gates of Jerusalem, he's going to be crowned king. And they, his closest friends and followers, are about to come into positions of great authority and influence. And this misconception now leads some of them into terrible folly and sin. Look at verse 20. Then the mother of the sons of Zebedee came up to him with her sons. And kneeling before him, she asked him for something. Now, James and John are two of Jesus' closest friends. Uh, at the Mount of Transfiguration, Jesus picked three disciples to go with him and see his glory. These were two of them. In Gethsemane, in a few weeks, we're going to see. Jesus goes to the garden to pray. He takes three disciples. These were two of them. These were two of his closest friends. And you'd have to figure, James and John are in line for something pretty sweet when Jesus, in fact, becomes king in the end. But they aren't satisfied with getting a good position for themselves. No, they wanted the best position for themselves. And they figure, hey, the time's drawing short. We can see Jerusalem in the distance there. We better make our move. And so now they do so in a very underhanded and manipulative way. Mark tells us about their first manipulation. Mark 10.35. They said, teacher, we want you to do for us whatever we ask of you. Ask for a blank check. That's something kids like to do to their parents, right? Approve my request. I'll tell you what it is after you commit yourself. They're trying to trap Jesus by his own kindness and his own faithfulness to his word to grant their ambitious request. It's a wicked manipulation. But then they attempt a second manipulation because they bring their mother with them. You know, it can be hard to turn down requests from a caring, motherly figure. This sort of emotional appeal we see in commercials and in politics. They try this one, too. More than this, there might be a third manipulation here. Because if you compare a number of passages from Matthew, Mark, and John, you'll find that there's a real possibility that this woman is the sister of Mary, the mother of Jesus. This may be Jesus' aunt who is making this appeal, trying to leverage her family connection to get a good situation for her boys. And I draw your attention to this possibility, because in Catholicism, one of the main reasons people pray to Mary is they have the very wrong idea that Jesus can be cajoled into granting our prayers by his family members leveraging their relationships with him. 
But friends, that is not how Jesus responds to prayer. He cannot be cajoled. He cannot be manipulated, even by those closest to him, even by his best friends and maybe even his family member here. He resists this manipulation, and he cuts right to the heart of the issue. Look at verse 21. And he said to her, what do you want? There's a lot of manipulators out there, friends. Here's, here's a secret for life. The best way to disarm a manipulator is to just take things plainly and head on. And that's what Jesus does. He just asks her the issue straight up. What do you want? There's no more tricks left to play, right? So she tells him, verse 21, she said to him, say that these two sons of mine are to sit, one at your right hand and one at your left in your kingdom. Now back in chapter 19, Jesus had promised that in the new world, when the Son of Man will sit on his glorious throne, you who have followed me will sit on 12 thrones, judging the 12 tribes of Israel. Jesus had promised the 12 a really spiffy reward. They were going to reign alongside him when the kingdom comes. But James and John want more than that. They aren't content for two thrones. They want the two best. They want the thrones nearest Jesus. And in the ancient world, when you got to sit beside the king, that meant that you had the highest level of uh, you were at the highest level of government and power. Josephus describes a king sitting his heir on his right hand and his highest ranking general on his left. Psalm 110 talks about God sitting the Messiah at his right hand as the agent who wields all of God's power and brings to pass all of God's purposes. Sitting at the right or left of a king was to hold the next best position in the kingdom after the king himself. And that's what these guys have the audacity to request. A highest, the highest rank, not only in the kingdom, but also over those other disciples, right? Now, this is not a humble request. Right? Chapters 18 through 20, we've seen Jesus says, have childlike humility. Don't be self-assertive. Confess your inability and your dependence. And then he says, generously and lovingly serve one another. What James and John are doing here is the opposite of all of this. This isn't humble. It's self-exalting. They want the top spot. And they want that not because they want to be increasingly dependent on Jesus, but because they want to be increasingly powerful and independent. And isn't their request and even their approach here just so unloving? They're trying to play Jesus. They're trying to undercut their fellow disciples. This is shocking arrogance. How's Jesus going to respond to this? Three times the Bible tells us God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. Jesus is going to say later in this book, whoever exalts himself will be humbled and whoever humbles himself will be exalted. And these guys are exalting themselves. So now it's time for them to get humbled. Verse 22, Jesus answered, you do not know what you are asking. These guys are so clueless. They're clueless first because they don't understand God's kingdom. Yes, in the end, Christ will govern all the earth. But in his first coming, he's not coming as a political figure or a military conqueror. He's come to save a people for his own possession, one converted soul at a time. And James and John, they just don't understand how God's kingdom works in this age. They don't understand that the cabinet is not about to be set up. They don't understand that Jesus is coming to Jerusalem not for a coronation, but to die. And more than that, they're clueless about what greatness really is in the kingdom. Because who's the greatest person in the kingdom? It's the king, right? It's Jesus. And what is Jesus' path to greatness? It's not luxury and ease. 
It's the cross. So Jesus asked them in verse 22, Are you able to drink the cup that I am to drink? Now what's Jesus talking about? When chapter 26, when he prays in the garden, he prays, My Father, if it be possible, let this cup pass from me. The cup points to those things he's about to go through, those things he just predicted, the betrayal, the suffering, the death. That's Jesus' cup. That's what the Father has assigned to him. That's the price of greatness in the kingdom. Suffering. Are John and James able to participate in that? Well, they glibly respond. They said to him, we are able. This just reinforces what Jesus has said. They've got no clue what they're talking about. So Jesus warns them, verse 23, he said to them, you will drink my cup, but to sit at my right hand and my left is not mine to grant, but it is for those for whom it has been prepared by my Father. Some years later, James and John would drink from the cup of suffering. They would both face terrible persecution because of their leadership in the early church and their proclamation of the gospel. Acts 12 says, Herod the king laid violent hands on some who belonged to the church, and he killed James, the brother of John, with the sword. Similarly, early Christians record that John was thrown alive into a vat of boiling oil, and afterwards it seems he was exiled to the island of Patmos. These two men would suffer greatly. But even despite that fact, Jesus says, ultimately the hierarchy of rewards and glory in the kingdom is not something that he can just distribute to them on that day and time. Because he says the Father has predestined those places of honor for people who are not here identified. So James and John have made an impossible request. They've sought from Jesus something that only the Father can award, and he's already handed those places out. I think this gives us some insight into eternal rewards. Friends, we should all pursue eternal reward. Now Paul says in 1 Corinthians 9, All the runners run, but only one can win the prize. Run that you may obtain it. We should seek reward. But we don't want to be stumbled by the prospect of reward like James and John are here. It's not like eternal reward says, you know, this life stinks, but hey, if I play my cards right when I get to heaven, I'm going to get my time to be in charge of all these people. That's not how this works. And I think it's really interesting that the Bible is almost deliberately vague about the nature of eternal reward. Almost as if to say, don't worry about the particulars now. You'll know about it when you need to. But what we see here is that the Father has made unchangeable determinations about how rewards will be distributed. And if we believe in God's sovereignty, that shouldn't be a surprise to us. So yes, we should live a life to try and be rewarded. We should run as well as we can if we're believers. Run to win and then trust the outcome to God. And don't view rewards like these guys did as means to personal power and pride. So their proud request is thwarted. But now the other disciples learn what they tried to do. Look at verse 24. And when the ten heard it, they were indignant at the two brothers. Now their indignation is not righteous anger. They're not saying, what did you try to do to Jesus? That's, that's not what this is about. These guys are angry because these two disciples tried to get a higher position than them. And they thought they should have a higher position, right? In fact, they're probably mad. They didn't think of trying to pull this same stunt themselves. Um, but their anger reflects that they have the same desire to be the top person in the kingdom and have authority over others. And so now we see that once more the disciples are squabbling with each other 
about which of them is greatest. Now, if you're like me, you probably look at this and say, oh yes, I, I could be a lot like the disciples and chuckle and say, how stupid. But I want you to see here, this scene is actually quite tragic. Because this whole section on humility, back in chapter 18, started with the disciples arguing among themselves about who is the greatest. And now three chapters later, after Jesus has preached a lengthy sermon about humility, after Jesus has given them several object lessons about humility, here they are, and they're still doing the same thing. They haven't learned anything. They are slow to hear and slow to learn and slow to obey, just like we are. And so now Jesus, filled with patience, once more tells them what they need to hear and what we need to hear. And he starts with a vivid illustration. Look at verse 25. But Jesus called them to him and said, You know that the rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them, and their great ones exercise authority over them. Jesus says, think about your political leaders. In that day, the emperor of Rome, or the Roman governor like Pontius Pilate. What were they like? Or what, what are the politicians of our world today like? Our presidents and congressmen and governors. Well, they're like every other leader in world history, right? They lord their position over those they rule. They exercise authority. They throw their weight around. They do what they want. Everybody knows that they're in charge, and they make sure everybody knows it. Now, the terms Jesus uses here are not necessarily speaking about abusive power, although power is often abused by elites. But I think these terms reflect the idea that in our world, power and authority create a contrast between the governing and the governed, between those who rule and those who are ruled, between those who are exalted and those who are demeaned, between those who are served and those who serve. This is the kind of thing James and John were after, right? They, this is what the ten were after. They wanted to be in the catbird seat. They wanted authority over others. But Jesus says this. Look at verse 26. Such an important verse. He says, It shall not be so among you. Friends, this kind of worldly political power is something that belongs to the domain of the Gentiles, Jesus says, of the pagans. First, I want you to hear this. Believing, friends, we don't need to pursue worldly political power. And we don't need to try to impose it on other people. And within the Christian community, we must not see leadership in the same way that the world sees it. We must not seek to impose a worldly sort of power and rulership over our brothers and sisters in the Lord. Leadership in the church is fundamentally different than leadership in the world. How? Well, Jesus tells us. Look at verse 26. He says, But whoever would be great among you must be your servant, and whoever would be first among you must be your slave. When God's kingdom comes in the end, greatness will be defined by... And really, even here in the, in the here and now, greatness is defined by. Greatness in God's estimation. And even the highest ranking positions in the church are defined not by any kind of worldly type of power or rulership. They're an entire, entirely different axis. Now, let me illustrate this quickly before we see the, the, the positive side. Let me rule a few things out. Friends, we don't select rulers here or rulers, we don't select leaders or elders here by worldly criteria. Right, in the world, who's influential? 
people with prestigious careers, with educations from top institutions, people who are fabulously wealthy, people who look the part, right? Got the expensive haircut. People who've enjoyed some measure of personal success. That's what the world values. And a lot of times churches use the world's criteria to pick leaders. Wanting people who look the part and who have a great track record in business and who can write a big check when we need one. Friends, we would do well to remember the cautionary tale of King Saul. 1 Samuel 9 said, There was not a man among the people of Israel more handsome than he. Boy, you know those Israelites looked at Saul and said, That's our king. But 1 Samuel 16 says, The Lord sees not as man sees. Man looks on the outward appearance, but the Lord looks on the heart. There's a reason most of the biblical criteria for leadership have to do with character. And Jesus says here, the heart condition that is most important is humility for the leader. This is the, the road to ultimate reward for all of us. This must be a key characteristic in those who become leaders of this church. And this must characterize all of us who currently hold leadership positions in this church. We must be marked by humble service. That's way different than what you see in the world. The world says it's all about me. And I see humble service says it's all about the people around me. Now, some people look at these verses and say, oh, well, see, the, the local church doesn't need leaders. Well, that's not true. In Titus 1, Paul says, appoint elders in every town. And the office of elder is the decisional authoritative office in the local church. And 1 Timothy 5.17 speaks of rewarding elders who rule well. That ruling is what the elders do. And the elders do have authority over the church. Because Hebrews 13, 7 says, Obey your leaders and submit to them. Jesus here is not denying the existence of authoritative leadership in the church. But he is telling us about the motives and the character of that leadership. Leadership in the church is different than leadership in the world. Because leadership in the church is not about wielding power for its own sake. Becoming an elder isn't like, hey, look at me. I'm important. Now I get to make the church about my vision. Now I finally get a vote to change things around here the way I like. No. If you've got questions about that, there have been so many abusive power scandals in churches with celebrity pastors in the last 10 years. And many of us have seen power struggles like this among elder boards in even smaller churches. Friends, leadership in the church is not about power. It is about rendering service. It is not about self-aggrandizement. Hebrews 13 doesn't just say that a church's leaders are to be obeyed. It also says they're keeping watch over your souls as those who will have to give an account. That's a service. We've been charged to look over you and out, out for you. If we exercise leadership for our own interests, we will be uprooted and severely rebuked in the end. We've got to put others before ourselves. And that's what Jesus talked about humility in chapter 18 when he said we're to receive our fellow disciples with generous, hospitable service. The leaders of this church are here to help you first and foremost. And friend, if you desire to be more involved in this church, if you desire to become a leader in this church, desire it for the right reasons, whether that's the eldership or helping out with children's ministry or helping out with AV, whatever it is, do what you want to do here, serve here, because you want to serve other people well. Not because you say, my voice matters and I've got an axe to grind and I see things more clearly than other people. Leadership in the church is not about self-exaltation. It's not about influence. It's about taking a cross and following Jesus. It's very hard, not the work, 
but the demands on who you have to be and become. And Jesus tells us here that leadership and greatness isn't just about serving generally. He says it's like becoming a servant, becoming a slave. You know, if you went on, on like one of these job boards and posted, who wants to be a slave? Not many people are going to sign up for that, right? That's not glamorous. That's what leadership in the church is to be. And it's a good thing to pursue. Because the church needs leaders. And because God promises rewards to those who serve and show humility. Friends, he wants us men to be elders and, and men and women. He wants us to be deacons and deaconesses and to serve in other ministries and to be role models for men and women and young people in the church. But the path he wants us to walk is not the path of an influencer saying, look at me. It is the path of humility and service. It's the path of becoming last now to help others. And in this, again, we have a supreme example in Jesus. Look at verse 28. Even as the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and give his life as a ransom for many. Jesus, the King, came to this world not as one to be served, but to offer a service. And the service he rendered was he died on the cross. How is that a service? Because Jesus said his death accomplished something. It was a ransom payment. This word ransom was used in the ancient world to speak of money that was used to pay to liberate slaves from their captivity. And Jesus says, that's why I'm dying, to liberate many. Friends, many of us, all of us have been in bondage. John 8, Jesus says, I say to you, whoever practices sin is a slave to sin. If the Son sets you free, you'll be free indeed. The Son has come to set us free from the power of sin and to deliver us from the penalty of sin, the wrath of God. And the price that must be paid is Jesus' death, the death of a perfect sacrifice, of one who was obedient to the Father in a way that you and I never could be, who's lived the righteous life that we've failed to live. Jesus chose to die to help us, to serve us. We heard about that in Isaiah 53 earlier. It was prophesied long before. He was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his wounds we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. Jesus bore our sin in his body on the tree, 1 Peter says, that he might bring us to God. See, Jesus is the first who became last. He became a servant and endured the cross out of pure love, putting us first, doing what it took to save us. That is amazing, humble service. And because in the kingdom greatness is marked by service, then the one who was first and became last becomes first again. Philippians 2.9 says, Therefore, because Jesus has died for us, therefore God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee shall bow, in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Jesus humbled himself and now he is exalted. And for those who belong to Jesus, we're not just to marvel at this. Philippians 2 says at the beginning, we're to imitate it. He says, have this mind among yourselves, the same mindset Jesus had. Do nothing, he says in Philippians 2, 3, from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Friend, whose interests are you looking out for here today? 
If you're in leadership, who are we looking out for? If we aren't in leadership, what is our attitude about the church? Am I here to say, is this all about me? Am I being entertained? Am I being fed? Am I being served? How am I profiting? The humility Jesus commands of us makes us ask these questions instead. Who can I serve here today? How can I think less of myself and look out for someone else's interests? Where can I sacrifice of myself to assist a brother or sister? That's the mindset Jesus had, and it's the mindset he wants us to adopt. And it comes with a promise of reward and recognition, both in the church today and in eternity forever. But briefly now we come to our last point, which is that Jesus offers these rewards for those who humble themselves as he takes those who are last and makes them first. All right, Jesus and his disciples cross the Jordan for the second time, and they come to Jericho. They're only about a day away from Jerusalem now. And we read this, verse 29. And as they went out of Jericho, a great crowd followed him. So these pilgrims are passing through Jericho. And verse 30. And behold, there were two blind men sitting by the roadside. And when they heard that Jesus was passing by, they cried out, Lord, have mercy on us, son of David. Now in the ancient world, blind people couldn't work. They had to beg to live. They were last in the world's economic structure. And here are two beggars who are well positioned to make some money. They're sitting by a roadside where the pilgrims are coming for Passover. People who are likely to give them money as they think about God's kindness. But as the pilgrims begin to pass by, the beggars hear some amazing news, which is that Jesus is in this group. And apparently they know something about Jesus. Because as they learn Jesus is present, they stop begging and they start hollering as loudly as they can to get Jesus' attention. Now that's a big step of faith. This is their primary source of income, to beg. And they stop begging because seeing Jesus or interacting with Jesus is more important to them. So they yell. But the racket annoys the crowd. Look at verse 31. The crowd rebuked them, telling them to be silent. But they cried out all the more, Lord, have mercy on us, son of David. This is an even bigger step of faith. Now they risk alienating the crowd whose money they need. But compared with the prospect of meeting Jesus, they cannot be silent. And look at the language they use. They, they know Jesus is the Messiah. And look at the request they make. Have mercy on us. This isn't a request from someone who thinks he's entitled to something. This is a plea from someone who knows that he isn't. Someone who knows that he needs God's grace to get him out of his plight. These men have a big need and they can't solve it for themselves. They are declaring themselves dependent and helpless. They're asking for Jesus' favor, his grace. They're demonstrating the humility Jesus has talked about for these three chapters. And with this humility, they persistently and fervently cry out to Jesus. And what happens? Jesus answers them. Look at verse 32. And stopping, Jesus called them and said, What do you want me to do for you? And they said to him, Lord, let our eyes be opened. They ask for vision. That takes a lot of faith to ask somebody to give you your vision. Especially these guys have never been able to see any of Jesus' miracles. They've only heard about them. And besides that, blindness is basically, uh, it's never healed anywhere in the Old Testament. And it's only been healed one time in this book. So this is an amazing request they make of Jesus. It shows they have great faith. But despite the obstacles here, they believe Jesus can heal them, and they ask him to do so. And what does Jesus do? He rewards their humility. Look at verse 34. And Jesus in pity touched their eyes, 
and immediately they recovered their sight and followed him. Jesus' heart was stirred by their faith and their desperate need. Friends, Jesus is faithful to give grace to the humble. And so he heals them, which is a great reward now. But look at what happens after they're healed. They follow him. They become his disciples. And they will receive great reward forevermore. Friends, Jesus loves humility. And we see here that he rewards it both now and forever. And what I want us to see here is this. We need to humble ourselves, as these men did. And we need to ask Jesus for his mercy. Maybe up until now, you've been spiritually blind. Maybe you think, well, I'm a pretty good person. God's pleased with me. I'm kind of cute, and I work hard, and I made money, and I've got a good education, and I can earn God's favor. Friend, if that's you, you're like the blind men in this passage. You are in desperate need of Jesus to intervene in your life. You need to recognize you're a sinner. You are under God's wrath. You cannot improve your situation on your own. What you need is Jesus' mercy. You need Jesus to set you free from the power of sin. You need to be made new. Fervently cry out to Jesus for mercy. Cast yourself upon him because he died for you and he's risen. This is the only path of salvation. But friends, if we know Jesus... We still need his mercy too, right? And as we listen again to Jesus' amazing example of obedience and humility and service, it shows us how far we each fall, doesn't it? How far we each fall short. How often do we still ignore what God says in our lives and do whatever we want? How often do we pay little attention to his word? How often do we look at ourselves and say, wow, you're really something special? How often do we look down on our brothers and sisters in Christ? How easy is it to want to be served and to refuse to serve? Friends, we fall short so often. And what we need today is what we have always needed. We need the mercy of Jesus. So let us turn once again to Jesus. Let us confess our sins to him because if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive our sins. And cleanse us from all unrighteousness, 1 John 1, 9 says. Let us seek his mercy, knowing he is faithful to give it to those who approach him with humility. James 4, 10 says, humble yourselves before the Lord and he will exalt you. Because, friends, Jesus is faithful to take us who are truly last, who are truly undeserving of anything other than his fury, and to make us more than what we really are. He gives us his mercy he forgives our sins. He gives us his righteousness. And ultimately, he will allow us to reign with him in the new creation. Today, friends, may we worship and love Jesus with a thankful heart because of what he's endured for us. And may we look to his example of humble obedience to the Father and of loving service towards one another. And may we strive to reflect that.